We live in an increasingly uncertain world of fires and floods and the devastation of our own actions. Climate change isn't coming, it's here. And we're forced to ask what sort of world is coming in the future. If we could travel forward, would we find ourselves in a wasteland? Or perhaps an endless cityscape? Or will we learn to make room for nature, even as all living things are forced to migrate? We may not have a time machine, but we can predict the future, the future of now. Or rather, Rob Dunn can, and does, in his book, The Natural History of the Future. To determine which species can survive and thrive, Dunn takes a good look at islands. The natural ones, but also the unnatural islands we've created. How do species migrate between them? Can we provide corridors to connect islands of nature? Our cities provide a type of island hopping corridor too, especially for the very small, from pigeons to rats to viruses. The future can make room for the migrations that matter, but so much will depend upon what we do right now. Whoa. Okay. I did it, it, you guys. I went to the future. I got a time machine and I went to the future. It was amazing. It was, it's also not good. Things are not good. I see in the future, this, this tension. It's almost like if we don't do something right now, things are going to get really bad then, but don't worry because there is a few things anyway some things we can do now and i know someone who can tell us all about it davy what have i missed in the now while i was gone what you missed in the now was me trying to explain this book to maggie and completely i like had a complete brain meltdown moment i i was trying to explain to her about the parasites and like bacteria and parasites and i was like you know the little things like the tinier tinier than bugs like the really small i like for the life i texted her like the next day and i was like it was bacteria i was trying to say bacteria <laughs> the mini bugs the mini mini yeah. tiny i missed i missed all that and see but the future the future it, it it's really interesting because you know i we know somebody who can do natural history of the future and it's just like he got out of a time machine too so i think we should welcome rob dunn Welcome, Rob. Oh, I love the smoke, but I love the claymation more. I want more claymation. I, I'm working on next year's. Uh, yes, it's a it's a whole thing. <laughs> um, I've been I, I literally start designing sets after I do the first one last year. It takes me this long to get it done. Um, so it, it, it has been really exciting reading your book. And I it just so happens that you are in the future right now. You're technically in tomorrow. I am. I'm in. I'm in Denmark right now, and I'm in. Yeah, it's tomorrow. It's like 1:05 tomorrow. Um, so I'm very excited to be here, but I'm also marshalling my inner uh, earlier in the day person. <laughs> well, it's really wonderful to have you, and um, it's funny. Normally, we do our announcements and then we jump into questions, but we have a first question to start us off, which is great. And while we're asking this question and doing announcements, a reminder to all of you, you want to be on the live version of the uh, the chat 
<clears throat> here on YouTube. And you are invited to ask questions. Please make sure you're asking us questions. We want you to. It's good. It's, it's, it's actually the best thing that we have going on. So uh, Kristen Meston asks, we have read science books by journalists. Why is it important your book was written by a scientist? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so I, um, I think, I mean, we need both kinds of books. They potentially do slightly different kinds of things. And so one of the kinds of things I can't do is I know lots of gossip about scientists that I would love to write about, dramatic stories of right. <laughs> wonderful and terrible people. Um, and if I was a journalist, I could do that with very few career repercussions. But because I'm a scientist, I have to wait till I retire. And so there's some things you don't fully get. Um, on the other hand, one of the other things that I, I try to do in a book like this is to think about what are we not seeing across fields that's sort mm -hmm. of invisible because it's stuck at the interface of ecology and evolutionary biology and architecture. And then also to work as a scholar to do some of that work. And um, in some ways, that's not so different from what Ed Young or Carl Zimmer or Mary Roach might do when they're linking things. And so they're, it's a blurry line between the two. But it's also the case that the, the kind of science I'm bringing into this, it's my daily life. It's what I think about right. every day. I work with mm -hmm. people who think about it every day. And so, so maybe I have the advantage of being just a little bit more privy to that world of things um, that are slightly invisible. And, yeah. and some of that is not just about what scientists uh, publish, but what they, they privately think. Mm, mm -hmm. I think that becomes pretty germane to the future because a lot of that private thinking doesn't ever make it into our broader discussion. Yeah, yeah. It's a good question. Um, it is a good question. I, I'm, it's a little bit, it's not quite the same, but I'm a historian. And when historians do history, it's different than when journalists do history too. And it, it is, there's a, there's a language difference too, frequently, mm -hmm. um, I find. And um, not that obviously we need to translate to a public audience when we're scientists or academics or whatever, but, um, but we translate it differently. I think if you start off, if you're, if the field is, as you say, germane to yourself. So that's pretty, that's very cool. So thank you. We have some other questions coming up that I've starred. Um, again, you guys continue typing questions. I have a question I want you all to think about. And I asked this partly on Facebook, which is, I know I have seen changes in animal behavior and animal migrations and uh, based on climate change just in my own lifetime. And I'm sure we all have, we all live in very different places. Some of us are, uh, Susan is in Texas. We've got different people from, from different areas. So um, I'd love to hear what other people think about the changes they've seen too. But first, announcements. What do you think? Somewhere. There they are. Um, so we have some announcements. Davey's going to put some links in the chat as we go. It is, um, it's really, really good to have you guys here. Please remember, again, I, I try to reiterate this. Sometimes I forget to. You can type us questions. This is the best part about the show. And I later always find people going like, oh, but I didn't want to ask my question. Yes, you do. You do. Trust me. It's no dumb questions. Only, only you know, we'll, we'll help you flesh them out, even if you don't know quite what you want to say. Um, but next announcement we have, I always forget what my next announcement is. Oh, yeah. Patreon and VIPs. Okay, guys, it is live now. <laughs> after after dint of effort, the new uh, new newsletter is live. So if you have if you've been following the show but you haven't been on the newsletter list, 
you should join because that's how we send our links. If you want to support us and be a Patreon, you can join us in Patreon and uh, for five dollars a uh, a month, which is not too expensive. And we'd love to see you there. That gets you access to VIP only shows. In a way, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here because um, we we have uh, <laughs> most of you here tonight are VIPs. So, but the Patreon is monthly. Don't worry, I'm still doing the annual membership drive. It's coming up. So next is, is that the clock cocktail next? No, Spreadshop. Oh, yeah, that's right. You can still order our merch through Spreadshop. Um, you can do all kinds of stuff. You can decide what sorts of um, styles you want there. It, it's kind of handy, but it all has our logos and whatnot. So yay. Um, next up, oh, I just, Susan Ballinger just got here. She's like, ah, my email went to trash, but she's here. She's made it. We were just talking about Texas and 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 we can talk about T-Rex later. The cocktail of the evening, which I actually finally made, Cat Maven, uh, Cat is our drinks maven. She comes up with these recipes. They're pretty amazing and awesome. This one is called, and the winning, they vote on the names, by the way, the win was Fall of Humanity. But it is very fall-like. We've got uh, sage and there's like black pepper involved and cayenne pepper. I cheated a little bit. Um, I had some habanero maple syrup. So instead of doing cayenne peppers and maple syrup, I put that in there. It is so much hotter than I thought it was going to be. So you guys can watch my face as I do. <laughs> so I start to turn bright red. Um, but it, yeah, there's muddled sage. It's great. It uh, the, it is in it was in the newsletter that was sent, and it is also up on um, Facebook. So please, by all means, join us there. Um, next, David, what's next? Oh yes, YouTube channel. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. There are so many more of you who exist than are actually subscribed there. <laughs> it helps us out and you get access to all the shows, which is super fun. I see uh, Rebecca Gibson says she's drinking a black lily. I don't even think I know what's in that. You might have to, you might have to clue us in. Um, okay. What's, oh, um, the, uh, the next guest, the Peculiar Movie Club. Davey, take it away. So those of you are probably wondering, hey, Davey, didn't you say that Bride of Frankenstein was coming out on August 31st? Well, <laughs> Unfortunately, me and Darren could not get synced up uh, last month to actually record it, but we did watch it and I'm still going to do probably a solo episode, uh, maybe even tonight. Who knows after this is over, uh, but you will get uh, the Bride of Frankenstein episode, which, you know, goes back to Reva's book from uh, last time and connects with Golem Girl. Uh, I, but I, I did watch it and we were talking about it before how it's, it's amazing how the movies from that time period still hold up so well and are gorgeous movies. So I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. Uh, I'm working on a, a movie for the, uh, for the end of the month, um, with our fiction book that we're going to be reading coming up soon. So I'm, I'm looking for a spooky cowboy story. So we might not be in the like the mainstream when it comes to spooky cowboy, but I, I actually have a modern one in mind that that might work uh, with witches and cowboys. Nice, uh, it's nice. Fit very well with our our second September book. I do like it. I do like it. Um, here's Cat, by the way. This is our lovely drinks maven too, that we have to thank. This is really good. Um, Cat, mine's really hot, but it's very good. <laughs> I, so I've been growing uh, my own my own habaneros and my own jalapenos, and I did not realize how much homegrown, how hot homegrown peppers are compared to store bought. Oof, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Rebecca says, uh, so this is the Black Lily, lime juice, contro, fernet braca. Oh my gosh, I've got all that. Sour, bitter, herbal. All right. I will take note. Um, oh, Susan. I'm sorry, Susan. 
the sun. And we didn't have a mocktail this time. Some we usually try to. Amanda says she's she's got a Hell's from Offset Beer in I I don't know if I pronounced yeah, it that right. In Park City, Utah. Sounds like a micro ah, brew, yeah. It's a micro brew. So it's like microbes. That's how you can remember, Davey, whenever you can't think of the word. Micro brew. <laughs> microbes. Problem. Um, yes, I love it. Okay, fantastic. Yes, it is hot. It is uh Kathleen. It is, it is. I, I used, yeah, maybe I should have stuck with the cayenne. Um, so yes, those are all of our announcements this uh this day. Um, and oh, Kathleen says, don't worry, next one is very mocktail friendly. So we're going to come back to our, our usuals. Oh, that's right. Amanda, you are the micro brew maven. We, I always forget that. Um, so back to the show, back to the show. Speaking of Again, things getting hot. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I'm, I've got another question lined up. And uh, again, I, I really want to hear from you guys about the types of things that you personally have seen change, um, you know, climate change wise. Kristen says, did you ever get to meet E.O. Wilson? Stoplight typing. Don't do it, kids. Yeah. Don't type while you're driving. <laughs> well, first, I want to observe that that uh, that Kristen's uh typing while driving is like the punctuation is flawless. And so Amazing, isn't it? rapid moment um yeah it's several times so so uh you know part of my disciplinary background is originally as an ant biologist and so i met him several times in that context uh at, at harvard where we would go to identify ants and he would sit back in a corner and you could go visit him um i also met him in tennessee when i was a postdoc and i was in charge of getting him to his talk and got him very lost and was responsible for him being late to his own talk which was not a proud moment. Um, yeah, but I met him a number of times. Well, it's going to start without him, though, right? <laughs> no, it didn't start without him, and uh, he <laughs> gave the he gave the same talk always, and so it also didn't really matter in lots of ways. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, brilliant thinker, but there were only so many talks. Right, right, interesting. Um, so I, you know, I think the ant stuff is amazing. Um, I think ants are very interesting. And every time I say this, though, I'm reminded of the fact that we're not talking about ants and uncles, um, which is where my mind goes immediately. It's just, it's an autism thing. So I just see these tiny little ants, like these little ants and uncles, like they're very small and they're marching. But I do think ants are amazing. I, I kind of am curious. This is my question. How did you get from there to this because that's a very small thing to a book that is so wide ranging. I mean, we talk about small things in this book, but we also talk about huge concepts. Um, yeah, it's it's a good question. So, so early on, uh, I sort of shifted from both studying ants and the species that live with them and humans and the species mm -hmm. that live with them. And those right. two kinds of societies that you can study in different ways. Um, but I, I was also very much always interested in you know how do we think about these societies while thinking across disciplines you know so what do they look like from an artist's perspective from a chef's perspective from a historian's perspective mm -hmm. uh and i realized at some point that you know i was an okay lab scientist an okay field scientist but i was pretty good at, at pulling these ideas together that, that span those disciplines or that we're not you know we're being held up in one light but not moved to the to the sort of neighboring uh, concept. Right. And, um, and so as as I went through my career and I sort of had more and more freedom to to think big in that way, uh, and I kind of specialized on making those connections. Yeah, I, I actually, I really value that. I think that's what I'm best at too, um, though from a, a 
historical perspective, which crosses over with a lot of other things. I was a historian uh, that my area of study was um, medicine. So I'm a historian of medicine and science in that way. Uh, One of my books was on the history of manufactured power, for instance. Uh, And I do think that there's a way in which if you yourself are a multidisciplinary thinker, and I sit between like among three disciplines, anthropology, history, and uh, literature, um, it kind of gives you that ability to see around corners a little bit, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? You sort of you go, oh, I see what's on the horizon there. Seeing around corners is, I like that. It makes me sound much more super, don't you think? Um, so I had, I, I'm seeing a lot of answers to this other. So let's talk a little bit about the concept of migration and climate change. I think, I know that wasn't the only thing that this book was about, but that was the like part for me. I like really honed in on that idea uh, of movement of species and changes in species that, that we see. And so I, I just, um, I asked the peculiars, they're going to pop up with a couple of these that they've come up with. And I'd love to hear your, your comments on them. One, Rebecca talks about a lot more pollen. She feels like the trees are producing more pollen. Kathleen said, uh, Kathleen says it, she feels like her spring allergies have now turned into summer allergies. Like the seasons for certain kinds of mm-hmm. pollen seem to be changing. And do you think that that's true? I mean, it, in gen, like big picture, if we just step back, Um, so as climate changes, species are moving, they have to move. Mm -hmm. And like one of the oldest concepts we have in ecology, that's a really robust one is the idea of the niche. And so you Mm -hmm. think about every species around you, every species has a a set of temperatures and precipitation and seasonality that they like and, and, and in which they can thrive. And, and so eventually, you know, as climate changes, almost all species are going to have to move as those conditions change. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when they're in a given place, as the seasons grow longer and they shift around, Mm -hmm. their biology changes. Right. And, you know, big picture in general, what's going to happen is that the, uh, you know, things will get earlier. So summer starts earlier, summer lasts longer. Yeah. One of the things that happens is, you know, how well species track that depends on how they measure Mm -hmm. the season. No, right. So they okay. measure it by temperature. So like the number of hot days in essence is what some species do. Then they're likely to respond really directly. But mm-hmm. if they're using different cues, they do different things. And so you can right. see this kind of b- behavior of trees or fungi or whatever. Yeah. They're, they're not, they don't seem to do what's making sense. And often that's because like, like they can't read what, what, they, what we've done to them. They're like, ah, I think it's summer. Like it's not right. I'm going to go ahead and make pollen. Yeah, yeah. I'm going well, to use all the pollen now. <laughs> right now. I want to find someone's nose and we're just going to get in it. Um, yeah. And here in Cleveland, we had some unusual weather this past year. It was a very mild summer. I'm sorry, a very mild winter. A very mild winter where it just didn't get that cold. But then we had an incredibly cold snap. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the evergreen bushes. So I have... Um, uh, boxwood hedges and the boxwood hedges normally they like you know they sort of pull back some sap they do some changes to themselves when it's going to be a cold winter they didn't do them so then when the cold snap hit it just killed like so many boxwoods like there's just dead boxwoods all over town and dead evergreens because they didn't they weren't prepared it was like mild 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 die in winter mild you know and and that they they don't not every species can go like okay and the deciduous trees actually fared better because they were already you know tucked away and, and all that 
you know, what, one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is that as climate changes, the what we often mention is the mean, con, the average condition. So on average, it will get this much warmer in 10 years or in 20 years. Mm -hmm. But we also know that the variability is also increasing. And, and so it means yeah. that those extremes come far faster than the mm -hmm. change in the average does. And so, and so one of the things we're seeing with that, and less so with trees than with animals, is that it favors the species that are able to deal with variability right and 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 so like if a species can deal with that cold snap and then a hot snap it's doing okay if it can't it's going to suffer this year even if it could do okay in 10 years because yeah it, it can't deal with that right because they don't actually live you, i love average temperatures because they're like well the average temperature i'm like but we don't live in average temperatures. no yeah, we live in really <laughs> hot days, really cold days yeah <laughs> Um, Susan Ballinger earlier, she said, I live in Florida and it's the temperature of the surface of the sun right now. Amanda Johnson was saying, uh, the thing that I think about most is how the snow amounts have changed since she's in Utah. So we used to have so many more snow days and winters with feet of snow. And this is true in Cleveland too. And now it's quite rare. Like I didn't even get to ski last year and I live in Cleveland where snow is, and I'm close to New York. Like there, you know, I should be able to ski, but it, you know, nothing doing. Um, she said last winter was was that way, but that's the first time that it's happened in at least a decade, probably longer. And I know last winter was record setting in a, a bunch of states, right? They suddenly had a bunch of snow and their snowpack, and that's good, but it's also very strange. You know, um, Bonnie said uh, she saw white Christmas stats for places, uh, for various places. A white Christmas is about half as likely as it was when she was a kid. So it's it's pretty nuts. I think one of the things for us to, to, to like to collectively remember too, as we see this these changes, is that we can actually predict a lot about what's going to happen in response to them, and so it doesn't need to be surprised. Some features will be surprising, but but a lot of it we we know is going to happen, and so it's useful to be ready for it. And so yeah. I saw that Amanda was talking about tree and other plant pests seem to be so much more prevalent. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, if you're in, yeah. if you're in the Midwest. That first, we've been predicting that since 1970 or, or something, 1980 anyway. Um, and so not only do we know what they're going to be more prevalent, we know which ones. And so it means mm -hmm. farmers need to be ready for those pests. And, and they can be, you know, they, um, and rule of thumb, you know, think about, you know, I could tell you for every city in the U.S. what city your city is going to be like in the future. Yeah, if you know a little bit about what that city's like. You can anticipate some of that change and plan for it. Yeah, and you can plan for, like you said, the the overall upswing. It's it's just you can't it the you can't necessarily plan. like I don't know what I'm going to wear tomorrow, right? Like that's it, yeah. it's quite the swings are quite large. Amanda Johnson also mentioned tree sex. We had this whole conversation with trees having sex with your nose thing in a different show. It's a, it just happens <laughs> that we go down these. So you know she had to was just reminding us look for that tree sex episode. Very funny. Um, Bonnie brings back too. she says she doesn't even like to think about it as climate change. It's like climate extremism. Everything just does stuff with more drama, <laughs> big mm -hmm. rain, bigger rain, colder, cold. Yeah, for sure. Oh. For sure. And I, I've just been at a meeting, um, this week about the future of food. And mm. one, one of the things that was being discussed there was this idea of a green transition. How do we move to more sustainable food systems? And, and in some yeah. ways it's, it's a moment when we need to make change pretty quickly. We're going to have more people to feed and we have to do so while using less energy and while emitting fewer greenhouse gases. But if we look historically, you know, at the dawn of agriculture, 
it was a time of extreme climate change when people were radically innovative. And so there were all yeah. these partnerings with different animals and different plants. Mm -hmm. um, Primo Levi has a great uh, short story about a centaur. And in it, he describes the moment when all these hybrids came to be. And the dawn of agriculture is kind of like that because human cultures were hybridizing with these different mm -hmm. species. And I think this current moment calls on us to, to think about what are these new relationships with other species that are going to help us be more stable with these extremes. Right, and, right. Because we do, we are always sort of searching for stability in some ways. Um, and a center. I'm always like, I, yeah, I, f I feel like I, I, I want that. I'm always trying to like, even when the way you garden, I'm like, okay, I need to try and balance. I've got to have the plants that are going to grow in the heat and the ones that are going to not die if it's swampy. And, you know, because I never know what the weather's going to do, but individual people can only do so much by yourself. Like the, the, it's a, mm -hmm. it's got to kind of be a community organized e event. But, I mean, very similar, similar to that. Um, we know both at like the local field scale and at the level of countries, if you plant more kinds of crops, those crops are much more resilient to change and resistant. Yeah. In part because the odds that some of them are going to do well increase. And so if you look over the last 30 years, there's a great study that shows the countries that had more kinds of crops were much less likely to suffer from climatic changes that have already happened. And, and so when you're talking about what you're doing in your garden, it's actually very yeah. parallel to what we can do at our state level, country level to, to buffer some of that change. It's true. I'm, I'm, there's a whole conversation happening um, over here about the colder, cold, icier ice. <laughs> Says Kathleen. Um, and then Rebecca said, uh, sampled intro to under pressure rings in the distance. <laughs> Seriously on the ice. More freezing rain. That's true. We've had a lot more freezing rain and things like that. It's hard to keep up with what's actually going on. Those of you who are new, to, if you're new to the show, what happens in the comments, it's like Vegas over there. It doesn't all make it into the show, but there's some good stuff over there. Um, Amanda is talking about the grasshoppers. You know, we've seen actually quite a lot more grasshoppers this year, too. And I know that is a, a species that goes in cycles, actually, is it not? Uh, it depends where you are. I mean, the, um, I mean, farther west, Mormon crickets have been uh, have had an outbreak year this year. I don't know what you're in Cleveland. What are they called? Ish, Mor right? Mormon Mormon crickets. Mormon crickets. It's not a religious Mormon comment. crickets. It's just a <laughs> species okay. name probably needs to be changed. But the um, um, but but we do see. I mean, in these weird years, it's you know, you one of the reasons you see more outbreaks of individual species is uh, oh yeah, so in for Amanda, it might be the Mormon crickets. Um, uh, but one one of the things you do see, thank oh, you very that's much. That's what they are. Oh my goodness! Oh, they're grasshoppers, oh, not Mormon very, crickets. Here. She had yeah. those, yeah, yeah. But look at that thing. That's a. Hmm. The, but the other thing we know, and let's so whoever's googling, uh, if you can Google camel cricket. Oh yeah, that's Davy. Davy's fast on the Google. Those of you who are listening on the podcast miss uh, some of Davy's amazing ability to find the things that we're talking about in real time. Uh, I think the most amazing one was when he found the cordyceps eating the cordyceps ant that time when we were talking. There we go. Oh yeah, so this is good. So, um, oh, and one of these is actually one of ours. Uh, but so we did a study a number of years ago where we were, we were studying the biology of things that lived in houses to think about what we want in our houses and what, what grows there. And uh, we were 
engaging citizen scientists. And it was a time when like we weren't being fast enough with sharing data. And so we asked the question, do you have camel crickets in your house? And camel crickets are really cave crickets that moved into basements. And uh, and we asked pe people, you know, where do you have camel crickets? And we got hundreds of responses in the first day. And we looked at the responses and they were cl clearly wrong relative to the science. Like, And what scientists always assume in that moment is like, oh, the public is, doesn't know what a cricket is. Um, and, and so then we asked for pictures. And it turned out that what has happened is that two Japanese camel cricket species and the one in the bottom left is for, and then the bottom right okay. are for sure that species um, moved into houses across North America, basically unnoticed. And they're the size of my thumb. And, and so this was just absolutely nuts because here's like a thumb sized thing that had invaded North America and like re really totally without anybody paying attention. And, and to me, it was a remarkable moment because, you know, if, if we're not paying enough attention to the giant crickets in our basement, you know, there are all these other changes that are happening around us that, that we're not very clued in on. And so that's the mm -hmm. other piece of this is, and, and I write about this in the book, that we often know more about general rules, what's going to happen in general, than we do mm -hmm. about a specific, you know, that specific grasshopper because there are so many species and the odds that any particular one we've studied in detail are pretty low. You know, yeah. current estimate is 8 million animal species and a trillion bacteria species. And, and so, you know, th that's hard to have all the details, but if we can keep an eye on sort of general phenomena, what in general tends to happen, it's often helpful. Okay. That's for I could, do you, do you I could say as, as someone who grew up, in basements you know like in northeast ohio we, we hang out in basements the general yeah. rule was just like we know the world down there belongs to them we we try to pretend that they're not down there you know we so like it's their world when the lights go off <laughs> it's also when we're like, on the wall before you turn the light on. i thought everybody would be so excited because they're you know pretty beautiful species with these long antennae and the dominant response was like well how, how do i get rid of these immediately <laughs> Um, and so our response to that was that we thought, well, what, oh, and then so, well, what use do they have? Uh, which also is a biologist, um, you know, frustrating question. But so we, we decided to work on I mean, what could, use could they have? And we found bacteria in the gut of one of the camel crickets from my house that can break down the waste of the paper industry, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And so here's a species we didn't notice. We pay attention to it by paying attention to it. We're able to find a, a use for it rather immediately. What Save about those the... ones? The ones with there's so many legs, but they walk like this. I hate those things. They the, like so many legs. Oh, okay. oh how like silverfish, millipede, how centipede thing. I, I don't. We that's what we call them, but I think it might be. Um, I think they, they might like, be called like, like in waves. They move like in an waves. Undulating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it might be a house centipede. Nobody studies them. Nobody studies those. No, a, a lot of those species moved into houses in Mesopotamia early in, in the Western settlement and then moved with us around the world and don't get studied. So, okay, that's yeah. a silverfish, right? So that's a house centipede. Okay, so so a house centipede, not a silverfish. I We've seen silverfish when I lived in the countryside, but these house centipedes, I am not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of spiders. I hang out with snakes. I'm friends with yellow jackets. I mean, we're good. But... Um, 
those things creep me out. I'm convinced that they ate our young when we were small mammals. Like, <laughs> I think somewhere back in history, they were our enemy, I think. Um, but uh, what I want to know about them, what I want y'all to study is how do they go from being this big to being this big in like three weeks? <laughs> what are they eating down there? <laughs> they eat a lot of roaches, actually. They're kind of no, roach yeah, specialists. Like... Um, or maybe but, that's but why I, I don't have One tie-in back to the, the book on this topic is, you know, that when we think about species moving... I can, I can almost keep a thread. I'm a little tired on the th thread at this no, time. Not, um, is, you know, species will have to move with climate change, and it's yeah. easy for them to, easier for them to move if we create corridors of their habitat. So if you right. are, uh, you know, if you are a, a wild cat species that likes tropical forest, and we create a, a connected patches of tropical forest, it's easier for you to move to track your preferred climate. That's and so true. that's been known and that's been the focus for a long time. But what's been sort of unnoticed but clearly predicted from that same literature is that if you take any habitat type and connect it, the species in that habitat type are gonna be able to move. And so one of the weird quirks of the world we've built is the species we've made it easiest uh, to move for in the future with climate change are species like those camel crickets or and the house those centipede house centipedes or norway rats mm, so yeah coronavirus to, to like them i guess so we've connected our urban environments and made it made it easy for those species to move which is like right. the opposite i think of what most of us you know we want hummingbirds to move <laughs> not norway rats but we created the other world and we want like you know kittens and things like that bubblebees um, so I see some, there's some more questions coming up, which I have I have singled out here, but it is the half point in our show. And at the halftime show, we do a little musical number. And I apologize, we don't actually have a video for this one. This is a group called Echo Astral. They're new uh, to us, but we have the audio for them. And Davey is going to cue that up. When we come back, we're going to do the author quiz, ask our final questions, and then release you to, to sleep, probably. <laughs> Music.
So that's a new one for us, Echo yeah. Astral. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of unique. We haven't had a sound like that yet. I'm sure. No, no, we haven't. I'm I'm hoping to have uh have them come back again next year, um, or next season, where we will sort out the video. <laughs> that was that was my fault for not clarifying that to them. Um, before we go to the quiz, I did just want to pop up a question that Amanda Johnson asked about the C-section part. So she says, I'm at the C-section part of the book. Do you think these findings will affect how many choose to have C-sections or will we find other ways to introduce the bacteria to C-section babies? And uh, you might want to give us just a little bit of a background on yeah. that so that for anyone who's not there yet. Yeah, that's a good question, Amanda. So the, the background is that in the last decade or so, there were hints of this going back to 1890, but in the last decade, it's become much clearer. Uh, we've realized that the the first microbes a baby gets uh, for their gut microbiome come from the mother during vaginal birth, both from vaginal microbes and from mother, mom's fecal microbes. And that that's really key to stabilizing that initial gut microbiome. And mm -hmm. it's it's then changes a little bit through through time. But some of those microbes stay with you for life. The other thing we've started to realize is that C babies that are born via C-section sometimes get some of mom's microbes from her skin and from nursing or just from being next to the body and, and sometimes develop totally normal gut microbiomes. But if they do, they're getting them from different places. You know, they're getting them from dog feces. They're getting them from other people in the house. Uh, and sometimes they acquire what are basically hospital microbes. And so there are a bunch of health outcomes that are um, more variable for C-section babies. And so going back to Amanda's question, you know, one of the things people are for sure working on is uh, storing mm -hmm. parental uh, microbiomes to pass on to the babies in the, in the event of a C-section or in the event okay. that the baby just doesn't acquire the microbes that it, that it needs. Yeah. Um, and People are also working on very commercializable, patentable, individual microbes that you'll get dosed with. Um, you know, expect those to be very widespread, offered by your doctor, and medically questionable for the first 15 years. Um, and then the other thing, going back to Amanda's question, is like, what does this do to, to C-sections? And for, first thing I'll say is like a lot of C-sections are just medically required and save lives. And so, yeah, you know part of our collective job is to find good solutions for uh, those moms and babies. Um, but then a lot of, of C-sections are, are um, uh, what's the word? They're op optional. People opt into a C-section when it's not mm -hmm. medically required. Um, and so, I, yeah, I guess it's a social, cultural, psychological question of whether this recognition, recognition changes what mothers do. And last thing I'm going to do is second guess uh, moms. Uh, and birth practices, but, but you know, but it, it reminds it is, me. It is clear we need to, to find ways. To, yeah, go ahead, Randy. No, oh, I was just going to say it reminds me of. Uh, the, so when I'm Gen X, so in Gen X, like they circumcised all the babies. They were like, "Oh, it's just cleaner this way," and that's completely not true. Like, I mean, there's there's reasons that we have that fold of skin, and if you take it off, that's fine. I mean, my brother is circumcised, is perfectly healthy, there's nothing wrong with it. Davey, you're Jewish. 
So yeah, you've got have that. Much but, on that one. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a choice on that one. But I mean, um, but it was just like they just didn't like they barely asked my mom. They were just like, this is a thing we do. And she was like, oh, okay. You know, and it, so I think that's really interesting. I, I sometimes wonder if mothers know they have options. There's a sense that sometimes there's a kind of a pressure um yeah, to, sure. to do, you know, to do the medical, the surgical thing, I think. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a fact. My microbiome doesn't work for shit. So <laughs> Well, Amanda, better ones. Amanda Johnson uh, talked about the uh, the poop transplants for C. diff. Uh, so mm. this everything on the Peculiar Book Club is cyclical. So we already learned all about fecal transplants, and yeah. we did a whole book on poop. It's a great uh, yeah. We did a lot of poop. Um, we we did poop and sex for some reason a lot last year. We did <laughs> that was a that was a theme. Um, not yeah. quite sure why. Uh, yeah, but you know now we're doing futures. I mean futures I and. They're pretty central biologically. I mean, <laughs> you kind of need. I them, think it's been know? a theme for since, since the origin of of um, animals. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, and of course, you know, some animals have a cloaca, which we learned about as well, and they they get it all done in one place. Anyway, um, including beavers for reasons that are not clear. What? Yeah. I didn't. Oh, how did I not know beavers had a cloaca? I'm like the cloaca master. No, that's not the right way to say that. I'm not. I'm not looking up those images. We'll, we'll have to. Yeah, you know what? Let's go to the quiz, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. uh, well, uh, the quiz is uh, in a in a way about animals uh, this week. So you a told, you told <laughs> I'm us just about... going to point out for the record that we we made a, a strategic turn on the phrase cloaca master. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yes, we did. Um, so you told us all about uh, the robot bees and how they were using them mm. to pollinate um, fields and stuff like that. Or at least they're, they're trying to come up with ideas to let them pollinate fields. And so that got me thinking, what other robot insects are happening out there right now? So the quiz this week is called, What's All the Buzz? So I'm going to ask you about three different robotic insects, starting with scientists at MIT are working on robotic lightning bugs, which can communicate with each other through light and make the tiny robots easier for researchers to see in the field. And, you know, the article shared how they had a ton of benefits. Um, what allows the tiny robots to light up? Is it bioluminescent luciferin chemical particles? Is it electroluminescent zinc sulfate particles? Or is it C, photoluminescence hydrogen gas particles? Ooh. Oh, yes, so oh, am I answering? Is that who's answering? You well, you can. So the the peculiars can help you out. Though honestly, I can't see how any of us are going <laughs> to. Oh, um, have you know, but, Yeah. One, one of these answers is right, and the other two, I had a lot of fun coming up with the fake I, answer for. Okay, so now all we really need to know is Davy's psychology. So Kristen says C. Amanda says C. I feel like we have a scientist in the room. You probably know more about this than we do. Well, I, I mean, I'm going to go with. Uh, the idea that if they're making them like lightning bugs, that they might use the same chemistry lightning bugs use, which is the mm. first one. Okay. Um, that seems very uh, smart to me. Going with A, the answer is electroluminescent zinc sulfate particles. Oh, that's boring. Uh, they're able to, uh, somehow they're able to get them onto like these strips weaved into the little lightning bug you see there in the image. I know. My made-up ones were more fun. All right. I'm sorry. That is... Okay, so first of all, we had up here, because I said um, my whole... Uh, what did I say? Cloaca Master. Amanda asked if that was the new absolute unit. Um, 
which has a whole other story. The absolute unit appears in most of our shows. But I will say that the best answer to one of Davy's quiz questions ever is that answer is boring. I love it. <laughs> All right. Question number two. Researchers at Japan's Riken Thin Film Device Laboratory are creating cyborg insects where they can actually remote control the insect's movement which with which Madagascar insect? Is it the Madagascar hissing cockroach, the Madagascar giraffe weevil, or the Madagascar acryoptera manga? Okay, so I know they have hissing cockroaches. <laughs> so at least... I will tell you, all three of these insects are native to Madagascar. Okay. That is not okay, the trick okay. of the trick question, yeah. Uh, so um, this is this is the actual insect, by the way. Novel. So this gets tricky because a friend of mine has created remote control hissing cockroaches, but he's not in Japan. Okay. Okay. And so this is so this I know is that actual. They, they exists. This is actual three okay. D pieces attached to the insect. This is yeah. Is you making like a little Gundam wing? Is that what you're doing? You're like a little Gundam cockroach? Is that well? The idea is like if they can then send them into disaster zones that they can detect things that that humans can't get to. Um, oh God, that just sounds very cockroachy to me. Wait, what is a what's an archaea manga? I'll look it back up again for you. <laughs> <laughs> Your friend must be great at parties, Rebecca. <laughs> Rebecca Gibson is one of our authors, by the way. She's been on the show uh, for her own books. Hissing cockroaches have a good carapace for attaching things to you. This is a very smart thing to say, Kristen. There's <laughs> a hissing cockroach. Look at that thing. Researchers, I love it. Okay, so it was A then. But what is the, what's the archaeopter? Oh, did I do that? Oh, I advanced. You did, that's okay. It was hissing cockroaches. And there is a little picture there's a picture of the little cockroach. And yeah, so apparently they can send electrical signals into their abdomen to make them go left or right. Like they literally remote control them. So uh, the right. cockroach is like, I suddenly feel like I need to go over here, but I don't know what. Uh, let me see. I think I might have to take the quiz out. Let's share my screen here. Okay, and so I'll show you the what the manga looks like. Manga. I mean, I'm expecting it to be black and white cartoons, but I guess that's probably not right. Nope. It's a little stick. A little stick guy. Oh, it's a stick. Now, it seems like you ought to be able to remote control that guy because he doesn't look real to start with. <laughs> yeah, he looks fun. He does look fun. Some of them have wings. I like that. I like the what the blue one oh. looks like quite nice. I would wear him like a necklace. Okay. Uh, All right. Sorry. Back I to what I did over there. I was typing things on the screen. All right. Let's get back to the quiz. Uh, question number three, your final question. So you talked about robotic bees, but robotic honeybees aren't just being used for pollination. If researchers can get them to work in tandem and eventually as a swarm, they might be used for what task? Weather manipulation, home security, or collective transport of heavy payloads? Let's see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for the comments to appear on this okay, one. Okay, let's see. Um, I mean, Bonnie imagine, says, imagine just your because neighbor... we can, <laughs> maybe we should. Imagine if your neighbor is like on the back porch and they're playing really loud, obnoxious music. And it's like oh. it's like one in the morning and you're trying to go to bed. Wouldn't you like to send a swarm of robotic bees to chase them off their porch? I actually tried to send my actual bees as a swarm, but they they didn't they didn't buy it. There's, there's, a, there's a lab suggesting that anyone. has now figured out how to train ro uh, robotic bees to do bee waggle dances and tell bees where to go. Oh my God. But, but it appears that sometimes the bees understand and just don't care. 
<laughs> they're like you're not a real bee so no uh, yeah like i know where you're telling me to go and i just don't feel it amanda johnson you'd want wasps well actually i i so i'm a beekeeper and one of the things i notice about my bees is it kind of does you have a bunch of bees doing waggle dances at one time right so it's the really enthusiastic ones who tend to win and so i had this one little bee who was just like she was like doing the macarena like every day she was just really excited i feel like she was probably you know she okay sorry what's the answer <laughs> so what was your final guess there rob sorry in all that chaos oh i'm gonna go with um well, I think if I think there is a project to do sneaky. Well, of my choices, let's go with uh, home security. Let's go on home security. The answer is collective transport of heavy payloads. Yeah, no. I if you can get them all to fly together, they're they're quite strong as a swarm. So right now they're working on them flying in tandem. So like carrying like a string between them and flying in tandem. Okay. And my next swarm. Amazon package is delivered by swarm. <laughs> You never know. This sort of goes to that chapter of the book, which is there are like some more obvious things we could be working on on behalf of the people of Earth. <laughs> but what would we have to quiz you about then? That's a good point. It's true. How heavy, Amanda? John? I know, me too. I'm like, I would like you to take my child to school. Heavy. We're talking heavy. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Okay. Um, wait, I had a thought and it is now gone because I am just thinking of all the things bees could carry. <laughs> so I've lost all the integrity with which I was going to African swallows. Yeah, coconuts, yep. African swallows. I was wondering when Monty Python would show up. I mean, lady, oh, lady paws, lady paws right. might be out of literal drones. Yeah, <laughs> lady paws might be out of a job. He could just you send your drink upstairs via. Bee oh my gosh, you're right. Form. You're right. He's Deliver actually not drink. here, so I had to carry my own drink up here. That I could get bees to do it for me. Man, we're slacking. Um. <laughs> I feel like there's something else I was supposed to do during the show tonight, but my mind is now blank and thinking only of bees. Help me out, Davey. What do we... Oh, we had another question. More That's questions? Question. Yeah, more questions. Toss Sorry. it back to the audience. Yeah, that is what it is. Um, oh, my gosh. Well, way up here. We got we got a lot of mileage out of that old hissing cockroaches thing. Oh, my goodness. There was another question. Who is mowing? It is nighttime. <laughs> Sorry. Um, ha. Kristen message is it? I did the Fitzpatrick map for Seattle, and it's uh, it's a damned if we change, damned if we don't situation now here. How do we get people to change if things are still going to get rough no matter what? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I think the psychological and cultural aspects of climate change are Im immense, and that we've not um, taken them seriously enough. You know, in the in North Carolina where I live, people are moving to the coast in record numbers. At the same time that houses are literally falling weekly into the ocean. Um, yeah. I just saw an ad for an Airbnb that's that's now like in the water. And all the people that were that offered reviews are like, it's amazing. Like you can hear the ocean underneath the room. Um and and uh, so the, the, the question of how we motivate people, I think, is is complex and difficult. Um and, you know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about now is is not just what's happening in, in well, I can't remember where the example was, Washington, Seattle, maybe. Um, but, you know, a lot of these consequences have a version that's in Seattle that's somewhat extreme. Mm -hmm. But what's happening in like the Sahel of Africa is, mm -hmm. is so much more extreme. You know, right. the, 
the this hill stretches along the bottom of the Sahara and you know models right now predict it becomes uh, a zone that's really marginal for climate for humans to live in mm -hmm. and it's also this border zone for cultures and so what those models mm -hmm. have predicted is that that would be politically unstable and what we've seen in the last two years is country after country has undergone coups across the, the Sahel yeah mm -hmm. and 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 so you know I'll pose the question back to the group which is you know how do we think about convincing people you know, not just to make change because of their backyard in Seattle, but because, you know, the, the lifestyle they're living is impacting mm -hmm. um, people at huge scales across the, the Sahel right now and elsewhere in ways that yeah. are going to ramify around the, the world. And um, I mean, to me, that's one of the most important questions we can be asking is, is how yeah. do we engage those conversations in ways mm -hmm. that make people make change? Well, one of the things I liked about your book, which I do not see in a lot of uh, so much that I read and watch about climate change makes me feel so hopeless that it's hard. That it's not exactly motivating sometimes. You know, you feel like you can't make a difference. But I thought reading your book, it was very obvious that there's things we each can do in our own lives. Um, and also not just about sharing information, but even <laughs> planting native species in our backyards. I mean, there, there's little things that each of us can do. And I felt like your book was much more hopeful than many um, that I have encountered before. And the fact that it was written by a scientist made me feel like that hope wasn't fake. <laughs> Sometimes when you read it, you're not sure. Um, so you're right. It is so difficult to get people motivated about some things. At the same time, um, some of that motivation is going to happen anyway. I was watching a show on tornadoes where Tornado Alley, which is uh, sort of Texas Great Plains, and um, there's another sort of Tornado Alley, they call it something else, that runs along the south, are now one giant, like they used to be separated by a safe corridor, and now they're not. Um, it's just been pushed together. And so at some point, uh, May the town of Mayfield, my brother used to live in Kentucky, and the town of Mayfield in Kentucky, which never had tornadoes, was just wiped off the map two years ago. So, you know, I think... We're very bad about conceptualizing our harm to people um, countries and countries away, but it's starting to come home to roost, I think. And I think as yeah. we start to know people who are suffering, it, it, I hope, I hope that that will make a difference. I think too, you know, um, I mean, one of the things I try to practice some days more than others is the, to think about how do we work toward examples of bold change? Mm -hmm. And so not to imagine you've got to change you have to change the entire world yourself, but mm -hmm. that you can offer an example for what a bold change might look like. And so we're pulling together people um, in the spring led by Aaron Seacamp, who I have the pleasure to work with at NC State and, and to get uh, people from the governor's office, from local communities, from climate change research programs, from transportation sector to come together and figure out you know, what are our possible scenarios for Eastern North Carolina? Mm -hmm. And, and what, what does it look like to collectively build toward the best of those scenarios, given what we know is happening? Yeah. Um, and, and I so think, I think that there's that, more you know, people motivated than used to be. You know, I have a role where I can I can work at that scale, but we all have scales we work, can work out in our lives. And, you know, what does it look like to be the bold person in your community? Uh, mm -hmm. And you don't have to be you know, the change you make can be small and yet you're modeling that change you want to see more generally. And I think that yes. makes a big difference.
I think that is a wonderful place to end our show tonight because one of the things that matters a lot to me is that we we are uh, the peculiar book club here we're a community and we we do come together for mutual support and i think that it is um it's empowering to remember what we can do on our own uh and in our spheres to be as you point out the person who can who can make change but i also just want to say to all of you if you haven't bought the book or if you haven't finished reading the book this is an amazing book and rob dunn's doing amazing work and so i i would hope all of you will support him by buying a natural history of the future a natural history of the future which i keep putting a the up there uh you can get it at our local bookstores but you can also get it at your own local bookstore and you can you can pick up copies i believe it's also it's uh, it's an audiobook as well so please yeah. do buy the book and support people like rob who are doing the kind of communication to the world that really matters and is able sometimes to reach people that we ourselves uh, might not be able to. So thank you so much for being here, Rob. Thank all of you for coming. It was absolutely fabulous. It was a great show. And we can now send Rob off to a well-deserved rest after a very long day. So thank you again, joining us at a place where if you're weird, you're family. You got the